This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Equity, diversion, and inclusion are ideas that are currently embraced by governments on all levels. Trending, debated, and celebrated, but not necessarily really understood. Today's edition of Discovery discusses how it needs to be approached to achieve meaningful change. From the University of Manitoba's podcast series, What's the Big Idea?, Dr. Robert Mitzi discusses deep inclusion and what that means for equity and diversity. I'm Cal Steiger. Welcome to Discovery. Well, my big idea is that the University of Manitoba can become a leader in deep inclusion. It can help move the discussion from that of being a superficial form of inclusion to one that's being transformative and inspirational to everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What's the Big Idea? Featuring University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh in conversation with some of today's big thinkers. Together, they unpack the big idea their work explores. We'll continue to hear from an exciting and diverse array of voices from the UM community, contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well-being of the people of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. In today's episode, Michael speaks with Canada Research Chair in Queer, Community and Diversity Education and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba, Dr. Robert Mitzi. A good part of my research talks about understanding the innovative approaches to anti-homophobia, anti-transphobic educational programs. So often the reaction from organizational leaders is to provide some sort of short standalone workshop. And I am arguing that that's ineffective. It does not lead to social transformation. So we need better ways to, to have an educational intervention in organizations. There's more work to be done along this area. And I'm thrilled that the University of Manitoba and the federal government have, have recognized this work as being important. This work has been silenced for so long, for generations. And now we have a space to, to articulate our voices and what, how we can make some changes and contributions to Canadian society. Hello, Robert. Hi. Thank you for sitting down with me today. I'm thrilled to speak to you about your research, specifically about your thoughts on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and what I think in your words means to have deep inclusion. Yeah. Here at the University of Manitoba, we, we are committed to being a leader in this space, but we know that there's a lot of work to be done in order for us to live up to our commitments. And we need big thinkers like you <laughs> to help us learn and make progress. And I know this conversation is going to be meaningful for our community and beyond. And I'm, re I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this today. Maybe if I could start, I'd love to know in kind of in your words, what's your big idea? <laughs> well, it's a good question. It's a big question. And my, my big idea is that we've got to start changing the way in which we do equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI. We need to start looking deeper into how the systems and behaviors and practices in workplaces need to change and becoming much deeper than what we have attempted in the past. And when you say that, what do you think has been missing? Well, I think 
what's been missing is that we've started to make the policy changes. We're starting to recognize equity serving groups and that's been fabulous. But what's missing is that I feel that there's the pedagogy. Why does this have to happen? Why are the equity serving groups needing to have some, some attention at the moment? And we're needing some more type of resources and things, our community connections, or even a sense of interconnectedness among all the different equity groups. And that's lacking, but I think there's potential for that to go further. And so can you give us an example of where you've observed deep inclusion? Yes. So, for example, I'm sitting with my advisory council that I have to my Canada Research Chair. And before we make a decision, we ask who should be at this table? Who should be offering their input, their voice, their stories, so that the decisions are making an impact, so that we're not making a decision that will just uh, have little or no impact on the lives that we're trying to elevate. So I feel like that's what it is all about. It's about listening. It's about mentoring and learning with one another and just inviting people into the space so that they feel much more a part of the community and they're feeling like there's an openness to change. I don't think a lot of Canada research chairs strike advisory councils. No. I, I don't even, you, maybe you're the first, I don't know. <laughs> and do you see that as part of the way we change? Yes, that's changing the system right there. Because from my view, if I'm going to be, and I do enjoy this, going into the community and starting to just talk to people about their lives and how can research be helpful to them, then I need to be connected. And I have one life in my worldview, but that's just one out of so much diversity around us. So I like to see some greater representation in helping inform my research. And that's why I formed the advisory council. From an organizational perspective, you're doing this at kind of an individual level in your work, mm -hmm. although hopefully your work then informs more yeah. than just the advisory council. So how do we begin to evolve as organizations to move beyond just superficial change? Is this a cultural shift that needs to take place? Is it embedded in policy? It's both, actually. It is a cultural shift. We all should know more about equity, diversity, inclusion, not just the people who we're hiring with those lead roles, which I think are important positions in any university or of any organization. But we all need to learn and to contribute and know about the issues that are facing marginalized people. So policy is, helps us get there, but not entirely just policy, because we know we've had human rights legislation here for decades now, and we are still where we're at, where there's exclusion going on. There's still people who are struggling and still trying to make ends meet or even just reach their milestone, whether that's a degree or even just graduate from their program of whatever that looks like. So we have to think of policy. We have to think about also the way that we interact with one another. We maybe have to start changing our language. And a good example there is that we now have the pronoun they, them, that we're recognizing, of course, and it's been supported widespread here. So that's where we're changing the language. We're recognizing that there are more than two genders. So that's an important piece to it. Diversity training has some important piece here, but I think we can go a lot further with even mentorship, for example. It has a lot more impact. So it's something that for us to consider. Well, one of the things we're starting to observe is some pushback mm -hmm. against EDI efforts. So in Canada, critics have spoken out against government-enforced equity targets, for example, from Canada research chairs, yes. right? But in the United States, what we're observing is some state governments having cut post-secondary funding 
in a direct effort to discourage EDI initiatives. So in some states, they've actually cut universities the equivalent amount that they're spending on EDI. Why do you think people continue to see EDI as threatening? There's quite a few reasons why I think and it's, uh, I think one of them is that there's a fear. There's a fear of difference out there. They fear that difference is going to somehow change the pattern of society. It's going to lead to complete failure. It's going to affect productivity and even meeting workplace outcomes. So that's one element. I think there's a fear of difference. But I, I think going further, I think part of it as well, if you dedicate a certain pot of money, you expect some sort of outcome to happen right away because of that investment. Well, EDI is going to take a long time. And so you have to have that greater vision of doing EDI within a, a longer period of time rather than in the short term. Because we're changing a system and changing a system is not an overnight task, <laughs> you know, considering all of those people who have to be involved in changing. But I think it, it also goes further to a point of just recognizing our privilege. And there, when there's when the people have a loss of privilege or any type of loss in general, they kind of tend to have a pushback and they don't want to lose. And so it's about, I think, once you engage people, having that social contact with one another, hopefully people have come to realize that there is no loss with EDI. It's purely a benefit. You get much more innovative thinking, much more diverse understandings, and you can actually promote greater productivity when you have employ and embrace EDI principles. So in fact, we shouldn't be threatened by this. No, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a politics of the day, unfortunately. And pushback and blowback against EDI has been something that has happened over time. And whenever when the US had started to introduce affirmative action, you may remember the pushback at that point. And that's been problematic, but we need those leaders with us real good, solid moral courage to say, no, we need this to happen and we will do whatever it takes for it to happen. And that's what we need. And focusing on the benefit. And in fact, as you said, it will improve productivity. It's not about loss. It's about including everyone yeah. in the opportunities. Yes. Yeah, so and once you get past that fear, that there will not be a loss of productivity and that there's a much more greater innovation with EDI, then you can see some real interesting things happen and some, I would say, even magic happen within organizations. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own career and your evolution of your career. So you started as a middle school teacher, yeah. right? And then you moved on. I mean, you've done a lot of work internationally. And I was just wondering how that experience has shaped the research that you've done and the career path that you're on now as an academic? Mm -hmm. Well, when I, when I switched from teaching children to teaching adults and I worked internationally, I worked in Kosovo, which is a post-conflict situation mm -hmm. in Canada. Instead of contributing peacekeepers, it contributed a major investment into education, which I was able to be a part of. And when I started working with the Kosovars and the Albanians and the Serbians, where they were not speaking at that time, we actually brought them back together for the first time since the conflict through education and through just discussing about the job. What's it like being a teacher? I started to learn when you find a commonality, you can have people who are really in conflict with one another come together. It may not be recognizing their difference, although you're implicitly doing that through the activity. But if you say, well, you're all people or you're all teachers or you're all workers of some kind, how can we make your lives a little bit more easier? And that starts the conversation and people start sharing stories with one another. And 
when I saw in my work, I've always been really passionate about the 2S LGBTQ community. And at night, when I was working during the day with the teachers in the Kosovo, at night I would volunteer with emergent LGBTQ organization. There was nothing at that time. <laughs> but volunteers have big hearts, right? And brought in a psychologist from Italy who was also based there. And we contacted with the UN and the OSCE. And we started to make some things happen where they can have a helpline that people can call in. And, and we have trained counselors. And we start to realize at that point that people from the LGBT community need access and they need information and they need support. So why can't we create the system to do that? And then they started to fold more into my major project activities and they continue to flourish from that point. How did that influence you to pursue the current line of research? I have done so much work internationally around the, the LGBT community. I was working in the UK and Kyrgyzstan and started up a nonprofit organization called Queer Peace International. And then I realized at that point, Canada needs some help too. <laughs> you know, mm. although we have yes. plenty of activists and researchers here in Canada, but the work it needs to continue here, particularly around gender diversity. But I haven't yet to see on any university campus, a same-sex couple walk down in a campus holding hands. And to me, I think that's a sign. If we're, again, listening and learning and looking when we're in a, a kind of wanting to be inclusive, then we see, notice these gaps. And then we start questioning why. Right. So I want to see a campus where I see much more sexual gender diversity on a more visible scale so that everyone can feel welcomed and then can be a part of the community. So that kind of flows well into the next question. Sometimes we like to tap ourselves on the back for work that we've done well. And U of M, it has been named one of the top diversity employers in Canada and something we're obviously really proud of. But we know there's still more to do. You know, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what do you think we're doing well? Mm -hmm. And then what do you think we need to do differently? U of M's done really an amazing job with its EDI. And it's been also regarded by the Canada Research Chair with receiving an excellent designation, which has been thrilling to see about happen. And so what's doing well, I think, you know, the formation of an EDI office, having also a strong indigenous presence, indigenous programming. I hear that from my current project. I'm looking at intersectionality on university campuses with my current Shirk funded study. And so many of the indigenous students are commenting to me that they do feel very much appreciated and welcomed in that regard. And so, You've got a strong focus on health and wellness here that's really been helpful, as well as it's good at finding the gaps, I think. Mm. And for example, when at the Active Living Center, there was questions as to where trans people can use the shower and use the washroom. Well, they made that change happen. They listened. And I think that's a strong point of U of M. The organization listens to people. But I, I think if you were to go a little further, and I think this is something that struggles across the entire country is around intersectionality and the Canada Research Chair Program is really trying to encourage people to think about intersectionality on campus. And so I hope to help some resolution in the next still a while. But also looking at space in general, I walk through a building, walk through the library, walk through any type of building on campus and what do you see around? Do you see statues or pictures or paintings of white men? <laughs> do you see uh, indigenous names or indigenous words? Do you see anything that would signal diversity in the space itself? And I think we need to go a little bit further there. I think we need to move beyond the white walls and add some color to it. 
because right. the, the walls can teach us. The things that we will see, we will learn from those experiences of engagement. And so space is something I would see a little bit more. So that would be another example of deep inclusion. A deep inclusion. It's moving out of the policy realm right. and moving into a practical realm where we're engaging at every step, literally every step and, and every doorway. And as we move in that direction, and, and I certainly hope we do, what do you see as some of the benefits that would occur organizationally for our students, for our community? Well, for the students, I think you would see a larger amount of people staying a part of their programs, finishing their degrees, and then moving on to the workforce and feeling like they've got a good reference point here about what it could look like, deep inclusion look like, Mm. and then could apply that to their future workplaces and say, I saw this at U of M, I did this here, and let's try it out. So there's a great transferability that could happen here. I think if we were just to engage our researchers in a more broader sense within the community, I think you'll see people also being drawn to U of M because they're seeing themselves reflected in pedagogy, in the curriculum, in the space itself. And as you say, in that way, when our students go out to the workforce, they'll bring that knowledge to the community. They won't fear it, maybe, the way others fear it. They'll see the benefits of the inclusion, and that will begin to have an impact on the larger society. Exactly. Now, your research as a Canada Researcher Chair focuses on the experiences of the queer community. And when we think about the importance of inclusion, and I think something you've written about in others, it's helpful to consider the consequences of systemic biases and exclusionary practices. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about the impacts on the queer community that you've observed or experienced that can help us understand why deep inclusion in this realm is so important? Sure. So if you think about three areas of society, there's health, education, and work. So let's just say they're a pretty fundamental part of our society. And already we have at a point here in Canada where we have sexual gender diversity recognized within legislation and policy frameworks. But what I'm proposing is that we need to think about the impact of having exclusion happen within health, education, and work. So health, the impact of health is that queer people or 2SLGBTQ people, if they're not feeling that they have a welcomed space, see themselves reflected in the organization, see themselves in the work or in the curriculum or pedagogy, then they are likely to withdraw. They are not going to participate. And that could have a disastrous effect on their health. 2SLGBTQ people have an increased rates of suicide, suicide ideation, depression, anxiety, addictions. And so that's because they can't find themselves and they need to have a space where they can, they can be who they want to be. Education would be the other piece where there's a higher rate of dropout with 2SLGBTQ people or perhaps not meeting their potential in their courses. And that's where exclusion is. How many profs know about queer pedagogy, for example, right? I would say there's not very many people who do. And last, I would say the workplace. The workplace has been fundamental to anyone's, you know, it's part of our, what's needed for society. And if you're not feeling welcomed enough in any kind of structure, then you're not going to perform as well. You're going to feel like, oh, that promotion that's available, that's for somebody else, it's not for me. And that's where we start talking about straight privilege, for example, and where straight privilege, people may want to, They'll just be kind of heterosexual, cisgender people will be more likely to go into those type of promotions or 
transfer to the good jobs and such, whereas queer people are likely to just hold back. The current stat around being queer and happy at work is about 40% of queer people feel like they have a sense of purpose and meaning at work, as opposed to 61% from cisgender straight people who feel that. And that's a recent 2021 Statistics Canada <laughs> point. So you can kind of consider there, you know, we're in a good policy situation, but we're not entirely there talking about deeper inclusion, what I think needs to happen. I read that you have written and studied on the issue of the validity of 2S LGBTQ identities in the international classroom. And so I'm really interested in your perspective of how this goes beyond just domestically to the international classroom. And what are some of the differences that you've observed or some of the things that might be different challenges internationally than here domestically? Sure. So if any Canadian 2S LGBTQ teacher wants to go overseas, my research suggests they're going to have a harder time because the country that they're may be entering may have laws in place that forbid and criminalize homosexuality or have nothing in place for being uh, for trans individuals. And so they're going to come across issues with privacy and confidentiality. They're going to have issues around the legal structures and as well as questioning whether their schools, their international schools will be supportive. Now, because international schools are typically Western funded or Western organized, there is more likely that they will have some sort of inclusion that they'll be considered, which has been great for me to hear. And actually the school of principal has been, my research is really showing that they are supportive. Unlike in Canada, where they're more least supportive of 2S LGBTQ people, the international school principal is more supportive. But I think where their struggle is around belonging, belonging in the workplace, belonging in the community, because of all these other tensions going on around the political tensions, you could say. And that makes it difficult for some. And of course, if that's felt by the teacher, imagine a student who is 2S LGBTQ yes. in that classroom. Now, when they do show some evidence of queer identity, so that could be like a rainbow on their classroom door or having a rainbow ribbon on they are more likely to have that student come out to them, which would be fabulous. You have to think about it. You're in a context, political context, where if you express any type of sexual gender diversity, you could face serious consequences. So having that ally in the room is powerful and important. So I would say there is space there for 2S LGBTQ teachers to go overseas and reach out to the queer student, but it's not without challenge. And when we think about being national leaders in this work, how do you feel we can collaborate with or support other organizations that might also want to create inclusion? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the one approach is sharing our knowledge, sharing our experiences and sharing our journey towards deep inclusion. I think that's one important piece, sharing knowledge in general. And that could be just helping connect people to our researchers and to our students who are really exceptional in their practice. But I also think there's a space for just having convincing people, just communicating to them the benefits that we talked about already of having a more deeper sense of inclusion. Because I don't think people realize, fully conceptualize how important it is and how much it can help an organization thrive. So there's a part of that is community, a little part of that is mentoring and just supporting. But I think my last point would be just thinking about reform in general, changing the system, because our 
current system, it's while it's working for many, it's not working at all for everyone. So we can help other organizations change through helping them change their systems the way that they work under. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I think this has been a really great opportunity, great dialogue, and thank you so much for asking such good questions. I think that we shouldn't give up. I think we always should be thinking, what's next? <laughs> so that's my big question to the big idea is what's next? And we have to think about now that we've reached certain milestones, and that could be that the equity targets are being reached or a certain amount of money is coming in if that's going to meet EDI needs. But we have to always be asking, what's next? What can we do differently next? And realize this will take a long time. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. I think your big idea can help transform our society to be a better place for everybody. I really think you're doing important work. I've enjoyed this interview, but I enjoyed reading some of your work <laughs> prior to this interview. And I learned really a lot, not only about you, but the importance, but the challenges and the things that we can do better as a UM community. And so I'm grateful for leaders like you. I'm grateful for your big idea that challenges us to be better. And like the other people in our community working on this, Tina Chen, who's our EDI lead, Naomi Andrew, and uh, Catherine Cook, who are leading our anti-racism endeavors. This is a big idea that we need to embrace as not only as a university, but as a society. I hope this year, people listen to this, that we do see lots of 2SLGBTQ members of our community holding hands across yeah. campus. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What's the Big Idea with University of Manitoba President and Vice Chancellor Michael Benarosh. Be sure to join us next month when Michael sits down with Stephanie Scott, Executive Director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the series. Thanks again for listening and be sure to visit umanitoba.ca to learn more about this leading research facility and its global impact. That's it for today's show. To hear this podcast again or any others from our Discovery series, go to Apple, Spotify, or any other major podcast platform. This has been a production of Everything Podcasts and 105.9 The Region. Until next week, I'm Cal Steiger, your host of Discovery. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.